anything's going wrong in your life, the first inquiry question to ask is, what's my part in this? Because the mind is very quick to blame everyone else and everything else. There's no growth and awareness and wisdom in that. That's the first inquiry. What's my part in this? The second inquiry question is, what's the feeling I just desperately, desperately, desperately don't want to feel right now? And look for that feeling. Because that tends to, the Buddha himself even said, feel the feelings inside the feelings. Go one step deeper. And that's where you'll cover boredom, uncovers loneliness. And that might even uncover feelings of worthlessness. Have you ever wondered why mindfulness practice can be a waste of time if you don't have good values and ethics? Hello boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, this is Nishant and welcome to the Nishant Garg Show. This is a podcast about helping you live a fulfilled life and my job on the show is to invite the world-class experts to extract the practices, routines and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. Today's guest is Michael. Michael is the founder of Prominent Leadership Consultancy WorkSmart Australia and the Mindful Leader, world's most comprehensive online portal for mindful leadership. He has trained and coached thousands of leaders from CEOs to frontline managers with a client base that includes numerous global multinationals. With an outstanding track record in his field, Michael is renowned as a world-leading authority on mindful leadership. He has authored two groundbreaking books the mindful leader and the practical guide to mindful meditation he is one of only a few people in the world to teach mindful leadership at an executive mba level on sydney university's number one ranked global executive mba michael has engaged in a disciplined personal mindfulness practice for over 23 years and has taught mindful leadership to businesses and governments for more than 16 years in this episode michael explains ethics values honesty and much much more now, without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Michael. Michael, welcome to the show. Nishant, it's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you, Michael. I was looking for this conversation for a long time. So I thought I should ask you, how would your family describe what you do for a living? It's funny, I ask, people ask me that question all the time and I always struggle to answer it. I do, if you use classic terminology, I am a leadership development trainer, coach, consultant, and author. If you take it at a, at a more extensive level, I do culture change. So the context I usually work in is companies come in and ask me to change their culture. So they, I help them identify what their ideal culture looks like, where the gaps are currently, and then we create a strategy to close that gap. And that's usually done by helping the senior leaders. Depends on the size of the organization. Could be anything between 20 to 1,000 senior leaders change their behaviors in alignment with the new cultural aspirations. So that's where the leadership development comes in. And then the mindfulness side of it fits into what we call growth mindset uh, or growth mindfulness practices because we don't introduce mindfulness in the context of stress or mental health. We introduce mindfulness in the context of the development of, of self-awareness and the capacity to grow as a human being, which now beautifully aligns with the adult development content that's coming out of Harvard. So we're very aligned with the adult development content uh, how to help a person grow into a more mature adult, which equals a more effective leader and a happier human being. 
Do you include mindfulness as part of the culture change at a workplace? Yes and no. It's a, it's been a very interesting journey with mindfulness. So especially this is my 23rd year of teaching mindfulness to organizations, government and business. And what I've noticed is that the introduction of mindfulness for its own sake is it fails. It's a little bit like trying to introduce exercise to a company. You know, like I often think of mindfulness for the mind as exercises for the body. It's like it's good for you, but it doesn't really have a strategic place. And not only that, it's not really an organizational initiative. It's something you can go and do in your private time. You can go and exercise or you can go and practice mindfulness. So I found it didn't work for us over time. And, and I'm seeing a lot of consultants doing that and going, part of me goes, oh, you're probably going to find a few bumps along the way. Our uh, work with mindfulness tends to fit into a methodology to achieve behavior change. So I'll try and talk you through that briefly. So Please. let's, for example, say we want psychological, one of the big buzzwords at the moment is psychological safety. So we want a psychologically safe organization. Okay, well, one of those prerequisite behaviors for that is complete transparency and honesty. In order to do that, you need the ability to hear people's feedback and not react, for example. So if you're a leader and you want a transparent environment, if people are going to give you honest feedback, you need to be non-defensive and open. But in order to do that, you have to manage your own pain, your own inner reactivity, your own fears. And that's typically, as an example, that's the point that mindfulness comes in. So we often joke with our clients and say, if it helped you to become less defensive or cultivate a new behavior or develop self-regulating awareness, if standing upside down drinking Coca-Cola every morning helped you to do that, we recommend that. But it turns out that mindfulness as a practice is probably the most efficient method to develop the kind of self-regulating awareness you need, also to develop the inner wellness you need to not constantly need others to be a certain way so that you can be okay in sort of what's called self-authoring in in, uh, adult development terms, where you're able to manage yourself independent of the environment. That might be following your values when no one else is following your values, that inner strength is really served by particularly, again, I keep mentioning the developmental mindfulness practices mm-hmm. versus the calming, what, what to one of my friends at Microsoft said, um, a balm. Often mindfulness is introduced as a B-A-L-M, a balm, like a kind of, here's a medication to calm you. Our work is more like, here's mindfulness to help you face the things you're running away from, to help you grow in the places that are difficult for you. That's how we tend to introduce mindfulness. Yes. Michael, before we go further, I would like to ask you, how did you get into the mindfulness space in your personal life? I was lucky when my mom started studying and practicing the the Vedic teachings from India. So uh, I'm not of Indian descent, but she, she got really interested in the Upanishads and the Gita and, and particularly around meditation and the practice of meditation. So I grew up with a mom doing that stuff. And I think when I hit 22 years old, sort of post-university, I'm watching my own son go through this exact situation right now that I went through when I was 22. I kind of went through an existential crisis because I'm now in the workforce and I'm going, I'm seeing people 20 years older than me and I'm going, 
right, this is it, right? This is the big show. <laughs> you kind of just like look forward to your holidays and have kids. And like, that's the meaning of life. And I couldn't bear that. I was like, that can't be the meaning of life. Why, why are we here? So I became very curious, like surely there's more to this existence than consuming holidays and family. And hence the sort of, I was lucky as I said with my mom and I sort of turned towards that inner inquiry work. I hated meditation. I hated it with a passion when I was young. I found it excruciating and difficult as a lot of people. (laughs) And, but it was like, eventually I realized it's sort of summed up by a friend of mine's comment. You can't think yourself to freedom. And uh, I realized that you, you just can't know what, you can't begin to understand yourself and the deeper hidden parts of yourself without mindfulness. So I'm, I'm, for many years, I saw meditation as a necessary evil. It was like, I hate doing this stuff, but if I want to, to get to where I want to go, then it's not really a choice. I need to continue to practice. So that's how I got into it. And, and then eventually I was lucky enough to be invited to work in that field. You mentioned about inner inquiry. What is that, Michael? I've just finished creating a presentation for a, a big client this morning on the very topic of inner inquiry. So summed up by Carl Jung's comment, he who looks outside dreams, he who looks inside awakens. In, inner inquiry to me is about trying to understand what's really going on with my behavior and hopefully uncovering the depths of the things that we're usually blind to and I'll give you an example. This is a, a, something I actually use in one of my, my, my programs is I had a client who could never say no to people. She was always over committing. And when one of my colleagues, uh, well, not really a colleague, but he was a, from another company, he said, oh, she needs a time management course because she doesn't manage her time well. And I remember thinking, I don't think anyone needs a time management course to manage their time. Mismanagement of time is rooted in avoidance. In addiction. It's a deeper issue than learning how to use a diary. And so when I began working with her, I was lucky enough to work with her. We very quickly discovered that her, her desire, her, her overcommitting came from a deep need to be approved of, to be wanted and liked. We then discovered that that came from conditioning in her childhood. But interestingly enough, she was completely blind to that pattern. So it's like, it's like the pattern has got her, it's running her, and she's like a helpless victim, in a sense, to the pattern. But within an inquiry, there's the possibility of uncovering that pattern and then crucially being free of that pattern. Because in her example, it's really, it's kind of a a self-perpetuating doom loop almost, because when she's saying yes to people, when she probably should say no, she's not respecting herself that sense of disrespect of herself is creating more need for other people to approve of her, which is creating more need to say yes when she should be saying no. And so it's constantly reinforcing a sense of a lack of worth, that pattern. Without any inquiry, you're condemned just to keep repeating painful patterns and then going for relief you know, with, anxiety, with addictions like TV or food or whatever it is we do. And it's a constant surface level reactive life. And inner inquiry gives us the ability, capability of seeing beneath the surface. It's like, 
you know, someone's got cancer, don't put a Band-Aid on it, skin cancer, don't put Band-Aid on it, which is often what we're doing. You know, inquiry allows you to, to see what's causation and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, but it's scary because in inquiry work generally leads you to need to face very painful parts of ourselves. So uh, in this inquiry work, do we have to ask some questions to ourselves or what does this practice look like? Again, that's something, it's a two and a half hour presentation I'm preparing. <laughs> if you could please explain in brief. <laughs> so there's, it's tricky, and you, I mean, no doubt you know this, and I know, I know you're asking me questions that you know the answer to. No. <laughs> so this so is for our listeners. Okay, so inquiry work, of course, has questions in it, but one never tends to look for an intellectual answer. That's the tricky part. And it's technique. It sits in mindfulness. So if I'm asking the question, why do I keep needing people's approval? And let's say I, I arrive at an intellectual answer like oh it's because in my childhood my mom and dad always said i should be a doctor but i ended up becoming a lawyer and so some part of me doesn't feel like i'm complete and therefore i need other people to complete me oh i got it da, da, da. intellectually mm-hmm. i now understand it unfortunately the intellectual understanding does nothing it doesn't change anything it doesn't shift anything and so it's tricky to explain really quickly but it's it's more of a physical it's more like the Inquiry is more like, where does this sit in my body? So, oh, I need Mm. approval. Okay, where do I feel that need for approval in my body? Is it in my guts? Is it in my chest? What are the stories that I, I tell in my mind to try and get people's approval? It's more like you're trying to uncover. You're not looking for an intellectual answer. You're trying to understand what's going on in, in the machinery of my body and mind. And you're trying to feel it and know it in experience. And in the feeling and the knowing of, of it in experience, you can begin to choose about it and resolve it. So, for example, if it's like, if I notice that every time I go for someone's approval, I feel like a kind of empty, nervous tickling in my belly. What I, with inquiry work, I can go, oh, right, I see, the, I see that that's what's going on now. So the inquiry question is, what's actually going on when I'm in, in the process of doing what I don't want to do? Ah, then I see it. I feel it. Then the next question is, can I feel this and not react from it? Which is where formal meditation practice becomes priceless. If you understand how to meditate in a developmental style, if you will. We, for example, a lot of people, if they're feeling that tickle in their belly, and that, which is usually an unbearable feeling, a lot of people with meditation, they'll go back to their breath. And they'll say, no, just stay with the breath. Calm the mind, calm the mind. Don't, 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 don't go and feel that. Whereas in the insight practices or the, or the developmental mindfulness practices, you, go, you get interested. It's like, ooh, there's real uncomfortable tickling in my belly. Let me explore that. Let me be mindful with that. That then teaches you uh, to understand it and to not be afraid of it and not to react from it. And even sometimes uncovers deeper feelings. And sometimes insights or stories will pop up. It's like you might be feeling that feeling and then suddenly you have this flash memory of, you know, your mother saying, you're a silly little boy or something like that. It's like, wow, that memory just flashes up. It's not something you, f- you looked for. 
but the root of inquiry is being interested in what's happening in your mind and your body as the events happening or their surrounding events that you that don't serve your life that's much more it's again you're not looking for an intellectual answer it doesn't help yes thank you michael for explaining that so you mentioned about developmental mindfulness practice so is there any difference between just mindfulness and developmental mindfulness practice um, development mindfulness first question is why we're practicing mindfulness and my personal practice is rooted in the insight buddhist practice so i'm not going to claim any originality on that one and i i have a very close friend who's i i think one of the world's if not the world's best insight mindfulness teacher patrick carney and patrick and he collaborates with me on all my app content on our 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 awaken mind app what the way it's typically taught is that the first order of business in mindfulness is to calm and steady the mind without a calm steady in mind a steady mind then all is lost you can't really do any work mm. so i want to calm and steady the mind the technique if we take i usually define i define mindfulness in terms of awareness itself and then i also because i do developmental practice i talk about self awareness what does self awareness actually mean i'll come to that in a second yes so the technique and the philosophy are radically different from a developmental practice versus a calming practice so if i calm the mind through what's called a concentration practice so i give them i give the mind the breath to focus on which is the most common meditation practice right i just follow the breath follow the breath follow the breath follow the breath and in that concentrated state the mind really calms down and clarifies and balances which is what you want no matter you know even if you're about to go into a developmental practice you need that calm mind so it's not a either or it's a both and but once the mind is calm enough and concentrated enough then one can begin to explore in a steady way what else is going on so the end of the road is not just the breath and and that can also lead to a whole host of problems in fact it did in my case if you just understand concentration mindfulness practice and you take the practice seriously sooner or later you will start repressing your emotional world so every time you feel sad or <clears throat> angry or you feel hate what you'll tend to do is you'll go back to the breath and the breath will calm the mind but you want to actually learn where does that hate sit in my body what's the story i tell what are the beliefs i've got what are the assumptions i've got in are in and around my hate what's the source of my hate in fact we tend to just deny that we have hate altogether and we chase some idealized human condition kind of like a, a zombie condition where i'm always perfectly fine which is kind of immature and ridiculous for a mindfulness practice the, the second stage is developmental practices and the developmental practices is just our way of describing insight mindfulness practice that's when invariably if i'm in terms of technique invariably if i'm meditating and a wave of fear or a wave of sadness or a wave of anger uh comes into the system or it's there i see it in the system that experience starts to become louder and clearer than my breath if that makes sense it's like yes drowns out the breath in a developmental practice that then becomes my focus of my meditation I don't say to myself, "Oh, you know, you're noticing 
hot anger in the tummy. No, you need to go back to your breath. No, you go, okay, let me really understand and explore and know this anger, see where it goes. The tricky part is, is that these intense feelings and emotions come with a strong narrative, a very sticky narrative in the mind usually. And it's very easy to get swept away into mindlessness again, which is why the, the developmental insight practices can be more challenging than the calming practices because you've got to have to have a background steadiness to be able to investigate and be with and know mindfully your the different experiences but not get swept away by them and then what happens is which is very very significant is that the purpose the primary purpose of a calming meditation is rest and wellness and a happy mind the primary purpose of developmental mindfulness practices is psychologically to be psychologically integrated and to grow as a human being. It's the development of wisdom. The thing with calming meditation practices is you could be super, super good at meditating with the breath and calm and have really bad wisdom, low levels of wisdom. And not only that, you can also be, I've met many people like this in my life where they've got a great calming meditation practice and the rest of their life's dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> this is oasis. so profound. It's an oasis escape from their new, usual neurosis, whereas a developmental mindfulness practice is your invitation to address and look and integrate your neurosis, your difficulty. I love it. I didn't know all this thing, by the way, Michael. So uh -huh. I would like to ask you that in developmental mindfulness practice, what kind of meditation we can do? So, I mean, without sounding cheesy, they're quite sophisticated practices and they need quite a bit of navigating support, if you will. So usually you'd be doing this with a really good teacher. We've tried to approximate that as accurately as we can in our app. So in our, in our app, we've, we've got a whole bunch of guided meditations, which is kind of paradoxical because many people go, well, you know, it's, it's a guided meditation. It'll take me into a calm place. A lot of our guided meditations are an invitation to begin exploring what's really going on inside you. And there's a structure to them that we, we teach people. In fact, we've had this comment from many users uh, that use our app that we're using the, there's a couple of apps, very famous mindful apps that are heavily focused on calming. And when they come to our app, they're often surprised. We're like, oh, I never knew this aspect of mindfulness was even available or was a thing. But the, the point of, so that's, the, to answer that, Nishant, there's a bunch of practices on our Awakened Mind app. People can just download it off the, app, off the app store that helps people begin to understand how do I navigate fear, anger? How do I navigate sadness? How do I begin to, it's like, how do I begin to come to peace with my whole humanity and to be less reactive and to develop wisdom a spit long complex, but if you look at Harvard's adult development work, what defines a person as more mature than another person, the key definition of maturity or growth in, in Harvard language, adult development language is you have the capacity to see the pattern inside of you and not be ruled or run by the pattern. That's maturity. Mm. So the more mature you are, you might see, oh, there's my pattern of trying to go for approval or there's my pattern of avoiding my anxiety or there's my, 
And you begin to see these patterns and then there's choicefulness over the patterns. But in order to see those patterns, you have to know they're, they're like their, their fingerprint, if you will. And so in meditation practice, you're beginning, especially developmental practices, you're learning the fingerprint, if you will, of the different patterns and structures running inside yourself that are effectively running your life and mostly negatively, not helpfully. And Michael, what does your personal meditation practice look like? It ranges. It depends on my travel schedule. I typically sit for an hour a day, usually in the morning. Um, that's my sitting meditation practice. My style of practice is now, you know, I think ideally, like, in, again, design-wise, when we design guided meditations, the purpose of the guided meditations is to teach skills, not for endless guided meditations. It's to teach the skills so that you can sit silently and you've got all the skills available to you to navigate and skillfully work with whatever arises in you, whether that be impatience, boredom, anger, hurt, sadness, challenging emotions, trauma, all of that stuff that you can begin to integrate. So my practice t- tends to look like that. Some days it's just beautiful, calm. Some days it's, you know, impatience and some days it's sadness. And, you know, it's, it's the whole, it's human life. But above all, I always remind myself that in sitting with my boredom or in sitting with my agitation or whatever it is, I'm consistently teaching myself to be embracing of my life, intimate with my whole life, and crucially able to not react. So an easy example, Nishant, around my own practice was when my dad died. My dad died of bladder cancer, but his colon ruptured right at the end. And I remember I was able to sit for two days in the hospital. I had to fly to South Africa and I f- sit in that, by that hospital bed for two days. And his breath was like that death rattling, breathing. It was excruciating to sit there. But I was I committed just to sit in the whole agony of it all, be present with my dying father through the whole agony of it all. And the experience was profoundly sacred. And that was like an example of the beauty of being able to teach the mind to not run away from pain, to not run away from discomfort. And I've subsequently discovered that I have a friend who says, the thing we long for most as human beings is intimacy. The thing we are most terrified of as human beings is intimacy. And in intimacy, there's such profound vulnerability and the, and the possibility of so much pain, you know, rejection, hurt, etc. And because we haven't learned to tolerate that pain, we back away from intimacy. We self-sabotage, we do all kinds of things. And it's ironic because we're longing for it while we're protecting ourselves from it. And what a developmental mindfulness practice gives you is the, is the strength, skills, and ability to be intimate, really connected. And if pain arises, pain arises, you're okay. And then life becomes more sacred. It becomes more vivid, alive, and most crucially connected. The very thing you're longing for, this connection, we're all longing for it, is available because what comes with connection sometimes is pain, vulnerability, discomfort, fear. But if you've learned to tolerate those feelings and still stay connected, then you have connection. And Michael, you 
talk about meditation in one of your books called Mindful Meditation, that oh. there are four foundations of mindfulness to practice meditation. Can we talk about that for a while, please? Yeah, so the four foundations of mindfulness were laid out by the Buddha two and a half thousand years ago. And a very powerful statement the Buddha made. He said, if you want the most direct path to the end of all suffering, listen up. And then he proceeded to teach the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness is basically, to use a, probably an inappropriate term, it's the Bible of mindfulness. It's the only time you'll find the Buddha's teaching is pure technical. It's not a single story. It's a pure, very detailed, very comprehensive technical manual on the practice of both the, uh, insight developmental mindfulness practices as well as calming and concentration mindfulness practices. The four foundations themselves could be termed the four domains or the four areas which, with which you can practice mindfulness. And they tend to to go in gradations of subtlety. So I'll explain, if a lot of my, my clients are typically corporations, so I'll explain how I explain the four foundations to a corporate, Please. just an easier way of referencing it. My work is in, in the leadership field and self-awareness is usually privileged as the most important leadership attribute. Extensive research on this. So when I ask people, Okay, so if self-awareness is so pr crucial for leadership, and, we, and I'm usually talking to leaders, what is self-awareness? Most people don't, can't answer that simple question. What is self-awareness? The second question I ask is, if you were to practice self-awareness right now as a deliberate, clear practice, what would you do? And Nishant, I probably asked 20,000 people that question in live audiences, and I I think I've I had the question answered once or twice accurately, which it reveals this, this complete lack of understanding of what is the practice of self-awareness. How do I, a lot of people think, oh, well, I'm self-aware. So I'll say, okay, if you're so self-aware, do self-awareness right now. And then they're blank. And say, how can you say you're self-aware when you don't even know how to do it? <clears throat> you know, with a lot of love and compassion. So at the four foundations of mindfulness answer the question. So the first, they, so, so to be self-aware, Awareness is a function of mindfulness. Mindfulness could be defined as the cultivation of continuous awareness. If that's, what the, that's what mindfulness is, presence, awareness. Self, what is self? <clears throat> and in, in the four foundations of mindfulness, it's split into four domains of self. So when I'm going to be awareing the self, what am I awareing? The first foundation of mindfulness is the body. I can, be, I can be awareing my body. So if I'm practicing self-awareness right now, I can tune into my body and I can notice tension. I can notice ease. I can notice feelings of like uh, fear, whatever it is, I can notice. And if I get skillful at noticing that, I can begin to understand what the physical signals mean. I can begin to see the link between physical experiences and actions I take. I can learn this whole world inside me around what my physical experience means and how I can be at peace with my whole physical experience. All of the teachings in the first foundation of mindfulness are about that. They're about found, grounding the awareness in the body and then learning right down to tremendous subtleties where you're, you're learning, for example, that most, if I say to you, Nishan, feel your left leg right now, what you will likely do is feel a concept of your left leg because left leg doesn't really exist as an experience. There's a series of sensations in that area of the body. But what we, don't, what we tend to do is we feel the concept, not the actual sensations. 
So it even gets down to those subtle practices where you're learning how to feel without concept. And then the second foundation of mindfulness, it gets more subtle, is, is becoming mindful of your reaction to your experience. So there's the experience. I like, for example, I feel my left leg and it feels sore and painful. So that's the first foundation of mindfulness. The second foundation of mindfulness is me becoming aware of my reaction to that pain. Now, the, and, the, and the Buddha described them as three fundamental experiences. There's pleasant experiences, unpleasant experiences, and neutral experiences. And we have three typical responses, one for each of those. For unpleasant, we tend to, our reaction to that experience is to push it away, aversion, to run from it, to avoid it. It's common. The second one. The second one is when it's pleasant, our, our, our natural unconditioned response is to hold on to it, want more of it, grab it, cling to it. And then the neutral experience is when we don't really, I usually use the example of brushing your teeth. Brushing your teeth is usually a neutral experience. You don't look forward to it and you don't really present it. You kind of just do it. What happens in the mind, what happens in, the mind in a neutral experience is it, it switches off. It goes into autopilot which the Buddha called delusion. So the three, the three kinds of responses we're constantly engaging in all day are grabbing, pushing away, and numbing. And, and to become mindful of that reactivity is priceless. And it's also shocking because how much we're lost in reactivity all day long. So that's the second foundation of mindfulness, is becoming aware of and mindful of your reactivity to your experience. The third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind. So this is when one begins to see the thought patterns, the deeper parts of the mind, like the assumptions, the unconscious beliefs that are running around in the mind. So, for example, most people I work with struggle with self-worth, even the most successful executives in the world. And you think, how is it possible to struggle with self-worth? A, you're a magnificent human being. I mean, if you're a human being already, how could you struggle with self-worth? You're absolutely a magnificent creature. You like, you're just like something to behold. And then that same creature thinks it's not worthy, which is a remarkable trick of the mind. And it's conditioning from childhood. But it's like deep beliefs like that sit in the third foundation of mind. So one begins to see the mind's delusion, see the mind's stories, and and see through the mind's stories, and stop believing the mind because the mind just endlessly lies. It's, it's such a delusional. Can't mind just tells lie after lie after lie after lie. <laughs> That's true. That's the third foundation of mindfulness. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is very challenging to explain. But Patrick and I, just to keep it simple, is mindfulness of patterns. So I can become, I can start putting the dots together of my life and the patterns. So, for example, if I'm going to the fridge and I'm being mindful, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, I might notice I seem to go to the fridge to to look for something to eat every time I'm bored. I tend to be bored every time I'm alone. Oh, that's interesting. It's like something in loneliness there for me. It's like, and I'm using this, eating the, the you know, chocolate in the fridge or whatever, or having a beer or whatever it is, to run away from my loneliness. Is that really working for me? I start putting the patterns of my life together. This is very powerful in relationships. That's the fourth foundation of mindfulness. It's learning your own patterns of awareness and becoming mindful of the patterns that are running you. That's the four foundations of mindfulness. Love it. So there's a deep 
thing. So you talked about going to the fridge. It's not about the boredom. It's about the loneliness. So there is a deeper thing going on. So we get to uncover that through different practices of mindfulness. Our two favorite inquiry questions are, if anything's going wrong in your life, ask the first question, inquiry question to ask is, what's my part in this? Because the mind is very quick to blame everyone else and everything else. There's no growth and awareness and wisdom in that. That's the first inquiry. What's my part in this? The second inquiry question is, what's the feeling I just desperately, desperately, desperately don't want to feel right now? And look for that feeling. Because that tends to, the Buddha himself even said, feel the feelings inside the feelings. It's like going one step deeper. What's going on in there? Yeah, and that's where you, you'll cover boredom, uncovers loneliness. And that might even uncover feelings of worthlessness. Yes. And Michael, you teach mindful leadership at an executive MBA level in Sydney. So how does mindfulness fit into executive MBA program and what do you teach over there? So I think I want to just talk more about not the, the MBA itself, but the leadership side of it. Please. So the... the one of, the, one of my own personal sadnesses was watching mindfulness being unhitched from an ethical practice, from ethics and compassion. And that's being addressed largely now, which is great to see. You know, not many well-known mindfulness teachers in the corporate space are, well, certainly they've reconnected it to compassion and kindness, which is great. But there's very little I've seen around ethics practice, so values and ethics practice in mindfulness. And it turns out that leadership lends itself very well to the subject of ethics practice. So when we teach mindful leadership, we, we first focus on ethics. It's the very first thing we do on values. So a classic question to ask leaders is, do leaders need to walk the talk? And every leader I've ever met says, of course. And what's it like when, you, when you're being led by someone who doesn't walk the talk? Yeah, it's frustrating. Da, 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 I don't like it. And so, okay, well, what's the talk that you're trying to walk? And if you're a listener listening to this, you might be shocked that you don't really, you may not know the answer to this. Like, what is the talk I'm trying to walk each day? And in leadership, that's a very necessary part of being a great leader. It's knowing what you stand for. It's called values-based leadership. And what I discovered in my own inquiry work is that from a mindfulness perspective, there's an expression that if you don't have a good values practice or a sila or ethics practice, your mindfulness practice is a waste of time. In fact, the analogy one famous mindfulness teacher gave is it's like if you don't have a good ethics or values practice, it's like practicing mindfulness is like rowing a boat still tied to the jetty. You're going nowhere. And the reason for that is that you're not congruent in yourself. You're constantly conflicted within yourself. For example, if you value honesty, which most of us do, but you're not being honest with your people, your team. You're avoiding difficult conversations or, you know, you're gossiping or whatever it is. You know, you go home and you complain about team members, but you don't have the direct conversation with them. What's happening in that mind is conflict. There's I'm doing one thing and I'm saying another. It's incongruent. That person practicing mindfulness, the best that they'll ever get is a bit of escape through the breathing. They'll calm down. But fundamentally, their system is not at ease. And so what I realized as I began to look at my first book I wrote was with the world's most uh, researched leadership authors. And if you look at 
proper research leadership theory, it perfectly matches up an integrated mindfulness practice or an integrated Dharma practice where it includes compassion, it includes ethics, it includes purpose, it includes beginner's mind. And so we begin to see the possibility of teaching well-researched leadership skills alongside beautifully integrated inner work, if you will. I say mindfulness is a part of it, but it's not the whole of it. As I say, without values work, you're kind of wasting your time. You certainly won't get very far with an insight mindfulness practice or a developmental practice, because every time you begin to feel beyond your breath into your body, it's going to be an unhappy place to be because mm. there's all that conflict. And so it was the teaching mindful leadership gave us the opportunity to teach a much more whole practice, holistic whole practice for people that delivered a much better result. It delivered genuine happiness, genuine congruence, separating out mindfulness from an ethics practice is, I don't know how to say it. That's like giving someone a swimming pool, but not giving them water. It just doesn't make sense logically. And the field of leadership gives us that, that, that the research, the method to integrate a series of practices for a much more complete human being. Yes. And Michael, would you mind talking about your values in your life? So my two most, I tend to, having done a lot of work in this area, I always say to clients, never have more than two values, never be more working on more than one at a time. Because values are, are something you need to instantly remember and they need to live with you in your day. And if, if, they, if it's complex, you won't remember and they won't operate. And they're a waste of time. And they're just a brand that you've done, that you reflect on once a year, maybe. <laughs> so the simple is, is important with values. And, and then also defining it down into behavior is really important Not because values are an arbitrary concept or ethics. So my value I worked on initially was honesty, and that's still one of my deepest values. And I, it took me about eight years to become somewhat comfortable with the practice of honesty. I could say for eight years, it was absolute agony, 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 working with honesty. And the, learn, the thing about a values practice is staying with it because it teaches you so much about your fears, your shadows, your unconscious beliefs, you name it, it teaches you. So honesty for me is about telling the truth to others no matter what. That then forced me to learn mindful conversations with Marshall Rosenberg. I was like, okay, if I'm going to tell the truth no matter what, I'm going to have to get pretty good at telling the truth in a way that doesn't destroy relationships. So that forced me to, into skills. Telling the truth also means revealing everything about myself. So if I'm feeling ashamed or I'm feeling needy in my marriage or I've, I've done something dishonest, you know, it means sharing that. It means telling people that. Like there's no secrets. That's an honest life. That was extremely confronting to do. And all the shame, because uh, shame or any kind of sense of shame or worthlessness as a rule, is held in secrecy. It's like we're holding yes. a part of ourselves away from others that we don't believe is worthy. And if we showed that side of ourselves, inevitably rejection would come. But with an honesty practice, like you risk it all. And the net result of an honesty practice for me has been a very, very, it's ironic. I didn't really, I just wanted to be congruent. What I didn't realize is that an honesty practice would teach me self-love. It was like it taught me a very deep level of self-acceptance. 
which I now understand is totally priceless. And it was by complete exposure all the time. It's like, I'm going to be honest no matter what. I will risk client relationships, which I've done many times. If a client's behaving badly, but they're also paying my bills, I'm still going to tell them and I'm going to risk that money. Because the moment I don't, I'm really going for money over honesty. And that's not what I, I want to stand for in this life. Could, in you, the... could you please tell us about any instance from your life when you literally struggled with practicing your value of honesty? So it's tricky. It's a little example. I don't, have, I don't have any big example where, oh, I do have an example where I failed. I can give you a fun example where I failed at honesty and then course corrected. I'll try and keep this simple because it's a bit of a complicated story. <laughs> I, was, I, was with, I had two clients in the same destination, Noosa in Australia. It's like a holiday destination. One client paid for my ticket. The other client had a, had a budget issue. They couldn't pay the ticket. So I call them client A and client B. So client A paid for the ticket, client B didn't. So I put the trips back to back. I went and I, was, I delivered client A's course on, on a Monday and Tuesday and client B I was doing on a, on a, on a Wednesday and a Thursday. So client A, I'm with client, client A doesn't know I have client B. I didn't think to tell them at the time. So client A, I, a the CEO on a Tuesday morning asks me, so what time are you flying home tonight back to Sydney? Now remember, they've paid my ticket. And I don't want to share with them that I'm also going to work with another client while they've paid my ticket because they might ask me, why don't you share the costs between the clients? So I've had this moment of shock and shame. And so I'm, ironically, Nish, and I'm teaching an honesty course, right? So, so <laughs> the client says, what time are you flying home tonight? And I, sh- and I go, oh, I'm not flying home tonight. And then she says, oh, wh- wh- I don't know. I'm going, I'm going to have a holiday. I, I say, oh, I'm going to have a holiday for the next day or two. You know, it's a nice place. Uh, I'll stay, see some friends. Oh, that's a great idea. And I'm lying. I'm blatantly lying now to the client, right? So I'm in the state of shock. I'm like, oh my God, I've just blatantly lied to my own client while I'm teaching an honesty course. Oh my God. And I had to put my luggage in my bags at the, at the morning tea break. And I remember walking down to the garage and feeling like I literally sort of stopping every third step, wanting to just vomit. It's, I was feeling so nauseous about this experience. And this is where the story kind of gets funny because it's that recognition. Okay, so what do I do here? If I carry on the lie, what happens is I'm going to deaden my feelings. The only way I can live with this lie is by not feeling. And I can do that by telling myself fancy stories like it's not the right time. It doesn't matter to the, you know, all the stuff we tell ourselves when we're not in alignment with our values. And I can see myself trying to like desperately grab for those stories. But there's another knowing in me. It's like, Michael, you want a life of intimate connection, aliveness, indulging in this pattern of telling yourself stories to avoid honesty is a route to deadness, not aliveness. It's not really a choice. It's like, oh my God, but the consequences of coming clean. My client's going to like, you know, walk out on me right now. Anyway, I decided I'm going to tell the truth. So I go back up to the meeting and I find like an ally, not the CEO. I go to like the CFO and I say, I've got to, I've got to confess something. And I, sl- I tell the CFO, you look what I've done. You know? And the CFO says to me, don't be ridiculous, Michael. Everybody does that. That's all fine. You no need to say anything more. I totally get it. It's all fine. And I'm like, oh, great. Thank God. Right but I'm still not okay in myself. So I'm like, oh, 
I've avoided the really honest conversation with a person I need to have it. And I've kind of done it as a substitute. I then went to another person, like the head of marketing, to try and get absolution. That still didn't work. <laughs> they said it's fine, it didn't work. And eventually, like, you know, I fessed up to the, to the, to the CEO. And the level of shame I felt was just so intense. And, you know, they were understanding and they even invited me to do more work with them later, which was a surprise. I remember thinking to myself, again, it's like, I do these things when I fail, I come clean because it keeps me not making the mistake so much. It's very rare that I do it nowadays. Little indiscretions, little silly things. Yes, you know, like my golf ball moves. If I play golf, like my golf ball moves and I don't say something, it's like, you know, little silly things like that. So still, there's still a bit here and there. but. There's always a price tag for not being honest. And I'm very grateful for my mindfulness practice because it allows me to feel the price tag. And knowing that I'm feeling the price tag means I'm feeling. And, mean, and feeling means I'm alive and human. And it's the tragedy of our culture. I see, Nishan, I work with very successful executives all around the world. I would describe the average executive as numb. They're not feeling anymore. They've, they've so deadened. So one of the questions I often ask senior leaders is, so when's the last time you didn't follow your value of honesty? And they usually can't answer at all. I say the last month, two months, three months, just anything. Mm, not black. <laughs> so you say, okay, so that means you must have mastered honesty perfectly. And a lot of them nod. They go, yeah, I'm honest. And I'm like, that's impossible. The only way it's possible for you to not know what you're doing is because you're so numb. You're not feeling anymore. To live a values-based life is demanding. It's very demanding. But it's a way to the very thing we all seek, which is congruence, inner happiness. Like, and there's research, by the way, that bears this out. There's quite extensive research that shows that people who live values, live their values, are much less prone to anxiety and depression, and their life satisfaction is much higher. And this is the tricky part. This is where mindfulness and values are like blood brothers because mindfulness sensitizes you to know what's going on in your system. And then living the values supports your mindfulness practice so that when you sit down to meditate, you're not in a world of numbness and conflict. You can deal with bigger issues inside yourself. There's a, there's a fundamental sweetness in your system. And in the leadership work, that's where we, why we focus so heavily on values-based leadership. And you can see mindfulness is like a support player to being a values-based leader. If you're a leader, your direct reports don't give a damn if you meditate or not. That's irrelevant to them. What's relevant to them is, do you show up and live your values consistently? Can they trust you at your word? Do, they, do you have credibility for them? That they, and do they feel psychologically safe? with you and that requires an advanced values practice but to do that values practice it's nearly impossible without mindfulness michael i really love how you have explained this whole concept of mindfulness it's not just kindness compassion you have really gone deep into ethics and value-based leadership and mindfulness I, i really love it is there any person that comes to your mind who is a leader who you think is a leader and who practices mindfulness to a great extent as well, along with you. (laughs) 
in, in commercial leaders, there's several, but Nishad, it's funny, you know, I would have answered that question gleefully and happily six, seven months ago, but what I've noticed is that I've gone, I'm going through, you know, in the spirit of real vulnerability, I'm going through my own interesting shifting viewpoint on the business world at the moment. And I've begun to wonder, genuinely wonder if it's truly possible to be ethical as a business leader. The corporate system itself is so, is so fundamentally psychopathic. It, it, it's so worshipping of the almighty dollar that when companies try and bring in ethics practice, they do, with, and there's humans with the best intentions, but it's so, every mindful, I just want to, die, I don't want to answer that because even the mindfulness leaders themselves are flawed. Even they make mistakes. Even they have blind spots. And I don't want anyone to look any outside themselves for an example to follow. It's not, I know it's, I can mindfulness teachers, I can, I can give you many who are deeply awakened people, but sort of corporate leaders, I've, I've yet to meet a corporate leader personally that I would regard as truly, truly, and I mean CEOs. I mean, I've met many leaders who are not CEOs who are wonderful, but at the CEO level, I've never met a CEO yet that I could say that person truly is the real deal with you know, and there's an impeccability and a vulnerability in their practice. You know, people like for the head of LinkedIn, he was the head of LinkedIn, raved about him, but I've never met him. But yeah, a lot of people love, uh, love for Satya Nadella at, uh, at Microsoft. I know he's a very big believer in, in compassion, but it's super easy to see. Yeah, I think, sorry, I'm stumbling over my answer. As you can see, it's a bit of a tricky one for me to answer. I don't. I personally don't look outside myself any longer for, for someone to look to. I have a good teacher that I work with, who's my dear friend, Patrick. But ultimately, I think each one of us mm -hmm. needs to be our own hero. That's how I see it. Yeah, this is wonderful. I, I love how you explain that. So, Michael, before I ask you my last question for this podcast recording, so do you have any closing thought, any recommendation for our listeners, anything that you want to share? I don't have anything right now, so except to say that isn't it funny that I feel like I need to have something? This is the old patterning. <gasps> I'm an expert. Oh no, I'm not an expert. I should know something. You know, when you ask me, I should I should give some pearl of wisdom. And he's just noticing, just this, noticing the pressure my mind is putting me under at the moment, and then voicing it to you now, and then taking a breath and going, "Oh yeah, it's okay to not know." No, I don't have anything to add. How's that? <laughs> great, great. So where can our listeners find you online? Mindfulleader.net is my mindful leadership website. But really, Mishan, all of our content, and I mean all of it, is going onto our app, onto Awaken Mind. The leadership stuff, the advanced mindfulness practices, the basic beginners practices, the mental health practices, the values practice, all of it is going on the app. The apps at the moment, there's some really great stuff in the app, but it's probably going to be triple in volume in the next six months and, uh, and advance in its usability ease as well. So awakened mind, awakened mind.com. And we can get all. 
We'll put all the information in the show notes so that people can learn more about your work, Michael. Michael, that was great, wonderful conversation with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Nishan. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Thank you.